Okay, while everybody is finding their seat, let's just review announcements uh, quickly, briefly. Um, for the ones that are redundant, no Bible class next Thursday night. That will be Thanksgiving. Then next week, the next week after that, which is the last full week in November, is normal. Then the week following that, the night of Tuesday, December the 5th, is pre-trib, and we don't have class that Tuesday night. And I'd appreciate prayer. I'm working diligently on a paper and presentation, which is quite extensive, and I'm the final speaker. I'm glad Tommy gave me that slot. That means half the people will be going home before I speak, so there's less pressure since I'm critiquing several people who are there. Hopefully they'll leave early. Um, also, um, again, a reminder on the Museum of the Bible. We're getting some few people have signed up recently, which is good. And um, also on the Israel uh, on the Israel trip. So we need to uh, get get the uh, confirmations in that, so we have a good idea what's going on there. Okay, one other thing in house, very important. Uh, as you know, there are several things that are going on within some, with some key people in the congregation. Um, some people are moving. Uh, other people just have other distractions in life. And we are, we've got a vacancy in an important volunteer position. And that volunteer position is church hostess. And that involves a number of different things. And we need a church hostess. We need also a, a new crop of volunteers to help with different events. As you know, in the last uh, month, we had hosted two uh, memorial services here at the church, and we need some help with that. We have our annual Christmas dinner coming up on September, I think it's September the 10th. Is that right? September the 10th. We also, as you know, will probably have a memorial service here in the coming month or so. And so we're going to need some help help with that. And then we will have the Chafer Conference coming up, and we need some volunteers who can help uh, with that, not only during the conference itself, but also uh, a lot of the prep work and planning work that begins about the middle of January leading up to that. So um, if you are are interested at all in helping out in these areas, then you need to contact Pam Richards and, and let her know. And one of the things we're trying to do is create a little bit of a team, a hostess team, so that the, the church hostess doesn't do everything, but that we can sort of divide up the areas of responsibility and we can have some different people who will just take on specific areas of responsibility. But also we need a group of, of five or six that, that help out because there are times when you, someone makes plans for a Saturday morning, for example, or a weekend and they're out of town, and then we need to have a memorial service. So we need to have some ladies who are available to help out out with that. So as I said, contact uh, Pam Richards about that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have together, and thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. Father, we thank you for the lives that we have, the many blessings that you provided for us. We thank you for the fact that we have another day, another weekend, another opportunity to serve you, another opportunity to study your word, to learn your word, to apply your word. Father, we're just so thankful that we can enjoy a relationship with you. 
and that we can walk with you day by day, moment by moment. Father, we pray as we study your word tonight, you'll give us a greater appreciation, understanding for what goes on uh, in the universe around us, surrounding us, that, that our lives are but a microscopic part, an important, vital part, but nevertheless a small part of something that happens throughout the cosmos, something related to uh, an existence that goes beyond uh, that which is physical, visible, and material, and that is within the angelic realm. And as we study this tonight, we pray you'd help us to see its significance for our own lives and our day-to-day existence, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to, I think, just start, let's just start at Isaiah chapter 14. You can turn there, we won't get there for a while, but you can, uh, or wait, wait a minute, Ezekiel 28, let's start there. Ezekiel 28, and we will get there, and we are looking at this passage in 1 Peter 3.19 that introduces us to one aspect of the angelic conflict or the angelic rebellion. It brings in a whole realm of a major doctrine, a major theme that is covered in the Bible and is so important for understanding a lot of things that go on. Because our existence, as I mentioned in my prayer, our existence is not in isolation. There are other creatures in the universe. They are not E.T. They are not Romulans. They are angels and demons. And so the Bible teaches us about these things because we can't learn of them. As I pointed out last time, you can't reason your way to their existence and to an understanding any of the uh, things the Bible teaches about them. You can't uh, get there through experience, through sense knowledge. You can't see them, taste, touch, feel, all of those things related to our physical senses, you, you, you can't know anything about angels. They're invisible. They're from a maybe a um, totally different kind of existence, maybe a different dimension. We just really, the Bible doesn't talk about it in those ways, but obviously they are not part of this physical reality as we know it. Now, last time, I pointed this out from our passage in 1 Peter 3.18 that it refers to an event that happens after the crucifixion and I think between the crucifixion and the resurrection or it could be after the resurrection at some point. It's not absolutely clear when this takes place. When Jesus goes and makes a proclamation, a victorious proclamation, to the spirits in prison. First Peter three nineteen and 20 uh, identifies that with the time of Noah. In Second Peter 2, 4, we learn a little bit more about this as uh, Peter again refers to angels who sinned and that they are not simply uh, in prison as First Peter 3, 18 puts it, but they are in Tartarus, a component or part or region of Sheol, as we'll get to eventually. And they are in chains of darkness and reserved for a future judgment. And again, Second Peter 2.5 connects that to the time of Noah. A parallel passage is in Jude. There are a lot of similarities between that one chapter short postcard of Jude and Second Peter. Part of it is this reference to these angels and a reference there to angels who didn't keep their proper domain. Some, there's, they left that abode and they're in punishment. They're reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. Again, we have that similar language and reserved for judgment. Their sin is identified by the uh, comparison with Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7 as a sexual sin. Now, that raises a lot of questions for a lot of people, and this is why I'm backing up and going through this. Now, I want to tell you about something that happened this last week. 
maybe it will change some of your perception about one of the things in our life that we don't really like a whole lot. And that, I'm going to use two really nasty words, customer service. Okay, so the other day I was on Amazon and I was wanted to order a theology book and I wanted it in Kindle. It's a whole lot cheaper in Kindle. But for some reason I had a gift card on there and it defaulted to the gift card. So I finally found a customer service number. That's hard to do for Amazon. And I finally found one and I called Amazon and said, okay, here's the deal. I've got a couple of different credit cards on my on my uh, Amazon account. One is for my business. I'm a pastor. The other is for personal. And I like to be able, and I've got Kindle books. I've got some that are personal, some that are professional, and I like to pay for, choose which card, but there's no place on here to choose which card. It just defaults to a gift card. He said, you need to talk to the Kindle people. So he switched me over to the Kindle people. I said, great. Went over to the Kindle person. A guy answered it. And uh, I went through and explained the same thing. I'm a pastor, and I, we got this division. He said, okay, great. And he said, uh, he asked me a few more questions related to the account, and he says, well, let me do a couple of things. You could kind of hear the typewriter in the background. He says, let me ask you a question. You're a pastor, right? You think there were giants on the earth at some time? <laughs> I thought, well, this is interesting. I said, yes, I do. I do. Uh, talks about Goliath. Goliath was a giant. He said, oh, yeah, that's right. He, I said, uh, said where did they come from? I said, well, you've got some different things going on here. You've got a group that are called, identified as the Nephilim before Genesis, in the early parts of Genesis, before the flood. And then you have, a, obviously, a race after the flood. There were several giants, and some of them are identified as descendants of Anak, or they're called the Anakim, and Goliath was um, one side of his family went back to the Anakim. He said, really? That's really interesting. And then he asked me a few more questions about the account, and he told me what he was going to do, and then he'd hear the typewriter go a little bit more, and he says, what do you think happens in Genesis 6 with those sons of God and the uh, uh, um, daughters of men? And so I said, well, I think those were the fallen angels. He said, I, I think that too. He said, you know where I get some information on that? I said, I think I do. You can just go to... And I gave him the website, and I said, you can go there, and there's a place where you can click on where I'm studying First Peter right now. And I just happen to be listening to that. So if you're listening tonight, hello, whoever you are, email me if you have any questions. But he, is, uh, he went there, and he says, okay, I'm on your website. Where do I find it? So I showed him everything, gave him a tour of the website and everything. And so you never know who you're going to talk to out there. So that was... Uh, one of the more interesting conversations that I've had with customer service. So God just opens these doors. It's just great. So uh, <clears throat> there are a lot of people who have these kinds of questions, and you may not. I've never had anybody start off asking me that before, but it's good to be prepared. So we're talking about what the Bible teaches about the angelic rebellion, the angelic conflict. So I went through several points related to that the last time. And the fifth point that I talked about was the creation of angels. And we're just going to start there. I'm not going to review what I've talked about before. The creation of angels and to understand these, uh, these sentient beings that God created before he created man. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So one of the points I made last time is that angels can take on physical form with many of the characteristics of a physical body. Now, that's really important to understand that. And this is in Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through the episode, but I'll just summarize it for you. What happens here is that Abraham is camped out down in the southern part of Israel in his, because he doesn't own any land ever, and so he's there, and he looks off in the distance, and he sees three men coming, and that's what the text says. He thinks they're men, so they look and act. They have all the characteristics of men, and they come, and he is going to, um, he's going to take care of them, provide for them. Uh, this is actually this is on the plains of Mamre, which has. Different people point out some different places this 
pro- if it's the plains of Mamre, it may be uh, it's down in the south. Um, anyhow, so uh, these are two angels accompanying the Lord because he will identify the Lord. And when they come, he washes their feet, so they have physical feet. They get dirty. And so that shows that the angels interact with, completely interact with this creation. Now, that's important because in some of the mystical kind of accounts that came up with um, in, in Eastern uh, Orthodoxy, things like that, it's it's sort of like they they're, don't really interact with material things. That's that influence of neo neoplatonism but their their feet get dirty and they eat and he prepares food for them which took a while if any of you have ever had the opportunity of being on a farm where somebody has gone to get the a calf or a cow and they killed it and they've uh, eviscerated it and they've prepared it and they've skinned it and they've done all of those things that you have to do it takes time if you've ever been deer hunting or any other kind of hunting where you've had to do that uh, you know that it takes time to do that this is a several hour operation then you have to build the fire now we know abraham had servants so he may have had uh, some of his servants doing some different things at different times but that uh, takes a lot of time as he prepared food for them and then after they ate they needed a siesta it was it was rest time in the afternoon, and they rested, and they were refreshed. That's described in verses uh, verses four and five. So they rested. He prepared food. All of these are actions that are standard for a, a human being. My point is that they were able; the immaterial angels were able to take on the physical features and functions of a human being of a material human being. So in some way, it seems that they are able to, they were able to transform their spiritual immaterial body into a physical material body that appears to have all of the bodily functions of a, of a human body. Now, um, another thing that we learn about them is that they are going to uh, go to Sodom and it appears to the men of Sodom that these are of a normal human appearance, a male appearance, that they were overcome by their lust and they wanted uh, Lot to release them so that they could have sexual relations with the, uh, these men that they saw. So it, they, they didn't say, oh, well, look, there's something different about them. They're kind of, uh, maybe they're trannies or whatever they are. You know, they're like a third gender. So nothing like that. They look like they're normal, uh, normal men. And everything that we see in Scripture describes them that way. Gabriel appears to Daniel as a man in Daniel 8.15 and in Daniel 9.21. Uh, he's described as a gibor, a man, a warrior. In fact, in in the scripture, we think of gibor as a warrior, as as a man, but it, it core meaning is a male. And if you go to a restroom in in Israel, you go to the sheratim. That's one of the first Hebrew words we teach anybody who goes on the Israel trip is how to find the sheratim. And if you go to the male share team, male bathroom, then it says in Hebrew, which nobody can read, gibor or gibberim for men. Okay, so Gabriel is called a gibor, and he's also referred to as an ish, which is the word for male. And that is found also in the creation narrative. And the word for woman or female is Isha. Now, we also know that in the New Testament, two angels appeared at Jesus' uh, grave, and the Greek term refers to them with the Greek word aner for male. And nowhere in the Bible does 
it talk about angels as a female. They all take on male forms, which is rather interesting. Never explains that. It's just a reality of the way it is described. Two angels appeared at Jesus' ascension, and they appear also as males with the Greek word aner. Anthropos is the word for men or mankind. Sometimes it means male, but aner is specifically talking about a male. Okay, there's one exception that is often cited, and that's in Zechariah 5.9, but it's not talking about an angel at all. Uh, so angels always appear as men. Now that's going to be important when we get into this whole discussion about what happens in Genesis chapter 6. Another thing that we uh, learn about angels is that angels don't die. They are not subject to physical death. Somebody Every now and then you get somebody who's probably been up too late at night and they ask a question, well, if, if death is the punishment for sin, then, then why don't the angels die? Because the punishment for sin is... Anybody here answer that? What's the punishment for sin? Spiritual death. What is spiritual death? It's separation from God. Are the angels, fallen angels, separated from God? Yes, it's a, it's a sin punishment. It's not physical death. Physical death is a consequence for humans of, of uh, spiritual death. So since angels don't have physical bodies, they don't go through physical death. We also know that angels are uh, invisible to mankind. I mentioned this last time, especially with the with the episode of uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, Gehazi and Elisha in Second Kings six fifteen to seventeen, where the angels appeared, and there are other times when angels appear, but generally angels are unseen. And then another fact is that angels don't always have wings. We know that seraphs have wings and cherubs have wings, but not all angels have wings. In fact, when other angels appear, they don't appear uh, with wings. Now, I pointed out in this slide last time that angels are rational creatures. They have volition. They are persons, individual persons with their own personalities, their own roles, their own responsibilities, and they have a relationship with God. They have all the attributes of individual personality. They have intelligence and wisdom, as seen in 2 Samuel 14.20, and they can communicate in rational conversation, as seen in Genesis 19 in the episode with Lot in Sodom, uh, Matthew 1.20-21, that's Gabriel appearing to Joseph, and Matthew 2.13 and 19-20. Angels express emotions, they express joy, Job 38, 4 through 7, and anger. Satan expresses his anger in Revelation 12, 7 to 12. They also have will, they have volition. Now, this is really the fly in the ointment. One of the questions that comes up, and we're getting into where how this explains it, is why does God let so many horrible things happen? It is the old problem of how do you explain the existence of evil because when evil is abstract it's one thing to understand it but when evil is personal in your life when there are tragedies and there is suffering and there is heartache in your life the response from many people is how can God let this happen and, and we hear this from many people that, that something happens they lose a child which is a horrible thing, or they lose a spouse, or they lose their job, or they, they lose things in life. They get terrible diseases from a young age that just shape and, and mar their whole life. And they, how can, they ask, how can God let this happen? And the answer comes back to this word volition. God created creatures with a free will. And that meant that they were free to obey him or they were just as free to disobey him. And disobedience would bring something into existence called sin. And sin would corrupt and destroy both the immaterial and material universe that God created. It has a horrible effect that 
reverberates through God's creation and harms and destroys everything. And that's the origin of evil. And we'll, we'll look at that as we look at the origin uh, of Satan and the origin of sin. Because God is still allowing his creatures to make free choices, there is still evil in the world. And even if all the creatures all made right choices, we still live in a fallen, corrupt world where there's going to be death and dying and suffering and all of this. So uh, this is the basic answer, and that's what we come up with when we look at the book of Job. We also know that angels have incredible but limited powers. The extent of their powers we don't really know they can move at the speed of light they're often compared to light so it's very likely that they move through the universe at the speed of light they have incredible abilities and capacities we're not um, we're told that they have power in verses like uh, ephesians 2 2 ephesians 3 10 and ephesians 6 12 Second Thessalonians 7 says that they are mighty. So these angels have power and ability. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word. They carry out, they make the universe run. We get right down to the, to the core of what, what's the glue that holds the electrons and neutrons and protons together, what, what keeps everything together. And I believe that the angels are involved in that at a level that that we'll never understand until we get to the other side of eternity. So angels have this power. Uh, For example, angels caused the men of Sodom to be blind. They they blind them so they, they, they could get away. They are as punishment for what they were doing so they couldn't find the door to get into the door of the house. Um, at the time of Daniel, in, when Daniel was in the lion's den, they shut the mouth of the lions. They, uh, when Zacharias was in the temple and the angel appeared to him, telling him that he would soon be the father of John the Baptist, and he didn't believe him, so he was skeptical, so the angel said, okay, you're going to be mute. You will not speak until the baby is born, and as a result of that, he was mute until John the Baptist was born. Angels caused the chains to fall off the prisoners in uh, Acts five seventeen to 19, freed uh, Paul and Silas in Ephesus in Acts uh, chapter 16. They caused uh, King Agrippa to die because he claimed to be God in Acts 12, 20 to 23. And we see in Revelation that they will inflict unbelievable horrors on the human race as punishment, as the expression of the wrath of God during that tribulation period. They are intelligent, but they are supernatural, and above all, they have limitations. They are limited by the sovereignty of God. They can't do anything. Fallen angels or elect angels cannot do anything apart from the will of God. They have to have God's permission to do what they do. That includes Satan. He just can't run around doing whatever he wants. Uh, He has to have God's permission, especially when it comes to anything related to believers. And that's what Job 1 and Job 2 describes. First couple of chapters there. When we ask a question about the number of angels, when we look at passages like Revelation 5.11, it describes them as myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Daniel uh, 7 uh, verse 10 echoes that as well, that there were, especially verse 10, there are thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Now, the next thing we, I asked last time was, when were angels created? This is an interesting question. It gets into also the question of when did Satan fall? There are three basic views. The, uh, excuse me, there are two basic views. Uh, I was thinking about the fall and not 
angels created when I type that. So two basic views. Before the creation of the earth and the universe, and the second view is sometimes you'll hear, I, I had a professor in seminary said they were created on the fourth day when the stars, because the angels are called the stars of God. So there, there are those theologians who tie those things together. The problem with that view is Job 38, 4 through 7. In Job 38, 4 through 7, God has now reached the point where he's going to answer Job. Job has all these questions. Why, God, did you take the life of my children? Why did you take my health? Why did you let all these horrible things happen to me? Why have I become a physical wreck? Why does my wife hate me? Just the basic questions of existence. And so God is going to wait, and finally God speaks to Job. And what happens in these chapters is that God begins to ask him a whole series of rhetorical questions. Job can't answer them, but the point of the questions is not to uh, get Job to tell God that he knows this stuff, but to reveal to Job the depths of his own ignorance and the parameters of his own ignorance, that if Job can't answer these questions, God is saying, then if you can't answer this and understand these things, then you can't, couldn't possibly understand my answer to why this suffering occurred. It's beyond your ability to fathom it or to comprehend it. You just have to trust me. So God asks these questions in Job 38, 4 through 7. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's the starting point. And tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You know, you've been saying all these things, so you must know the answer to this. God's being sarcastic. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone? And then the verse that is what we're looking at, that when these foundations were laid and the cornerstone was laid, the morning stars, that is a phrase that describes angels, the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That tells me that when God originally creates at the basic starting point of the creation of the earth, Genesis, I believe that's Genesis 1, 1, that there is this heavenly choir bursts into song. Just incredible. It's all the sons of God, which indicates a fall hasn't taken place yet because they're united and they're all singing in praise to God. So at that starting point, that means that the angels were created before Genesis 1-1. So it couldn't be on the fourth day when God created created the stars. Now I'm going to skip, i got a couple other slides here, but I think I'm going to skip that until we get to uh, the fall of Satan. Well, isn't that interesting? I'm using an updated version of Keynote, and it functions differently. There we go. Okay. The classification of angels. There are different types of angels and different ways in which angels are talked about in the Scripture. The first the term that we find is that there seems to be an angelic council. Uh, we see all the sons of God in 1 Kings 22 gathered before the throne of God as Micaiah the prophet is uh, relating this vision to Ahaz or to uh, Ahab. And he, he, so that's the angelic council. It, all the sons of God are there, and that includes demons and fallen angels. Just as you see in Job 1 and Job 2, there are these angelic con convocations. But primarily, I think the term angelic counsel here refers to the elect angels only, not to the fallen angels. And the reason is, look at Psalm 89.5. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Now, when we see phrases like that, this is a, a, a figure of speech where the heavens are being put for those who inhabit the heavens. Like when Moses is talking to the Israelites and he calls upon heaven and earth 
to witness. Well, he's not talking about the material stars in the sky to witness the covenant and the physical earth to witness the covenant. He's calling upon the inhabitants of the heaven, two witnesses, the inhabitants of the heavens, which are the angels, and the inhabitants of the earth, which is human beings. That's why he's calling upon sentient beings to witness this covenant. All the sentient beings he's created, humans and angels, are witnesses. So here he says, the heavens will praise your wonders. That is the inhabitants of heaven, the angels. Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Kadshim, from that root kadash, which means to be holy or set apart. So this council of angels refers to that, not, not, not the whole group of fallen and elect angels, but here it refers to just the elect angels, just the holy angels. And it goes on to say, For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty? And here we have the phrase, sons of God, b'nai elim. Now that's a phrase similar to the term we find in Genesis 6, which is b'nai ha-elohim. Elohim is the name for God. Elohim, elim, same thing we have here, and, and the, but we don't have the definite article here. So it's, it's talking about the angels. They're direct creations of God. That's why they're called the sons of God. It goes on in verse 7, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. Again, talking about the elect angels and awesome above all those who are around him. That is all those who encircle and surround him. So this is the same kind of picture we see in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 of all of the elect angels surrounding the throne of God. So they're referred to as this sense as this, this assembly of the holy ones. Second, we see the term the host of God. The host of God. The Hebrew is Sabaoth, and that's a word that is used in, uh, in, in a mighty fortress is our God. And it's not Sabbath. It is Sabaoth. It's a TZ, and it is referring to um, the army of God. It's host is just an antiquated English word for army. Psalm sixty-eight seventeen describes it as chariots. The chariots of God are twenty thousand, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Now that's really kind of an interesting verse. Because when he talks about the chariots of God, again, we have a figure of speech where something is put for something else. The chariots are put for those who are driving the chariots, the army of the angels. Now, there's an interesting scene where a chariot comes to take Elijah to heaven. And it's, if we put these two together, it's very likely that that's a figure of speech there and where the chariot that's coming is is a circumlocution for the angels that are coming that are escorting Elijah to heaven. Not that there's not a, a, a chariot there, but it's just not a chariot that's that's coming without angelic uh, guidance or support. Matthew twenty six fifty three talks about this army. We just studied this in in. Um, in Matthew, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when uh, Peter tries to protect the Lord and he lops off the ear of Malchus and Jesus puts the ear, ear back and then he uh, reproves Peter and he says, do you, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And at this particular time, angels, uh, our legion was about 5,200 uh, angels, and so this is uh, talking about quite an enormous number of angels, around 64,000, I think, if you work out the math, that are um, uh, would would come to the aid of Jesus. Another classification of the angels has to do with the different orders of angels that are created that are seen 
the cherubs, the word cherubim, the I-M is the Hebrew plural ending. So uh, uh, if we brought that over, it would be cherubs plural, or you can still use cherubim. They're described in passages like Ezekiel 1, 5 to 24, Ezekiel 10, 1 to 15, where they're identified as cherubs. You just see these creatures identified or described in Ezekiel 1. And then Hebrews 9, 5. Might open your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 1. This is fascinating. Uh, People who usually have trouble reading Isaiah have a little trouble understanding Ezekiel also. So I always encourage people, probably one of the better one or two volume commentary sets is the Bible Knowledge Commentary. There's a new commentary also out, one volume commentary by Moody Bible Institute, the Moody Bible Commentary, and something like that. Now, you're not going to agree with everything everybody says. I don't agree with everything everybody says, but it's helpful. It's synthesized down to at least give you a general orientation of what's going on in these chapters, and if you have questions, you can look at something like that. So if we look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 5 says, also from within, that is this this image that he has seen of the throne of God coming down. He says, from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. See, I have another category mentioned down here, these living creatures that are described in Revelation 4, 6 through 9. They're a little bit different. Uh, so we have four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. So the cherubs have four faces, four wings, and their legs are straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkle like the color of burnished bronze. They have a hand of a man under each of their wings on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, one had the, they each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Those were their faces. So these are fascinating creatures. I don't want to get off on a lot of speculation, but what's interesting is that God, when did God create those creatures? Before or after he created lions, eagles, and ox, and men. I'm not sure what that means, but I thought I would throw that out there for you. That's called observation of the text. Before Genesis 1-1, he's created cherubs. Satan is a cherub. We'll see that in Ezekiel 28. And so this is their form. This is also described in Ezekiel 10. We won't look at that in Hebrews Hebrews 9. Then we have Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is when Isaiah is before the throne of God during the time of Isaiah, and he goes into the temple, and he and he just sees directly. in the He's in the physical temple in Jerusalem, and he looks just straight into heaven, and he sees the Lord on his throne, high and lifted up. Above his throne stood seraphim. Each one has six wings, so these are different. They don't have four. They have six. Two covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And they cry out, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then, just to round this out, we can go over to Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 through 9. And we see this description of the throne of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. That indicates knowledge and uh, wisdom. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So see, the cherubs have these four faces, but the seraphs each have a different face. I mean, the living creatures each have a different face. And they have six wings like seraphs. And they say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So they're singing like the seraphs. So they have a close 
similarity to the seraphs, but they're a little different. And then you have one who is designated the archangel, arch being the first, and that is Michael, who is also uh, the guardian of Israel, and he's described in Jude 9. So, and then you have just the just the angels themselves, just the, the, the as you might say, just, just the rank and file of these myriads upon myriads of angels. And who knows, there may be different types of those that are not revealed in Scripture. So we have these different categories and classifications. Now, when we talk about the origin of Satan and the demons, every creature, including the angels, was created by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that every creature that God creates is created perfect. God is perfect. He is holy. He's righteous. He can only create that which is consistent with his character. It's perfect, holy, and righteous. John 1.3 says that all things were created by him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. And this is attributing creation to the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father is the architect, Jesus Christ is the one who implements it, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who energizes it. So they're each involved in creation. Now what we see, and I didn't realize this chart was going to, I'll just animate it through much of it. I pulled this over from a chart book, and and you can get a DVD with all the charts in it that that, uh, Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice uh, put together on dispensationalism really has a lot of of neat neat charts, and this is takes us through the f- opening dispensation. What I wanted to point out to you here is under the next topic that I'm talking about is how does evil begin, and what Scripture teaches is that evil has a beginning. And that's important because it contrasts with all the pagan systems. All the pagan systems have good and evil existing e- eternally. And ultimately, in many systems, that comes, they get joined together to the two sides of the same coin in monism. And if you, uh, if you see the yin-yang sy- symbol with the black on one side and the white on the other side, that is a symbol for... For monism, that even if it's black and white, it ultimately is part of the one. I like to use the illustration of a scene in the Empire Strikes Back in the what was originally the second Star Wars film, and Luke Skywalker is battling Darth Vader, and he takes his lightsaber and lops his head off, and when he, the head, helmeted head, falls to the ground, he opens the visor, and he sees himself. This is like the Beatles song, I am you, you are me, we are, we are one. It's, there's no real distinction. Ultimately, it's just pure Eastern. It shows up in Hinduism and Buddhism. It's just this ultimately universe is just one. All these distinctions are just a uh, uh, sort of a mirage. So... The Bible teaches that evil has a beginning. Over here on the left side of this chart, you have eternity past. Sometime in eternity past, you have, or at the time of creation, I put it between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, we have the fall of Satan. And that is, uh, that is the beginning of evil. Uh, here's another timeline. There is a fall of Satan. There's a beginning to evil in the Bible. God allows free will to run its course. And then at, there will be an end to human history. And at the great white throne judgment, it, described at the end of Revelation 20, there is a judgment of evil. And this is described in Revelation 20, verses 10 and 14 through 15. And then all the those who are evil, Satan, all of the demons, all the unbelievers are all cast into the lake of fire. So evil ends, and it is restricted to the lake of fire. So there's a beginning to evil and an end to evil if you're thinking biblically. It's not eternal. And if you're not thinking in terms of a biblical view of history, then you don't know what to do with evil. 
And and that's one of the big problems people ask and is how can God let these things happen? How can God let something like what happened at the Church of Sutherland Springs take place? Because God allows for volition and God allows for people to choose to do evil things. If he didn't, then he would be shutting down uh, mankind and he would be having to end history. Because, but he has chosen to allow creatures to do evil with their evil consequences so that he can teach about his grace and his love and the gospel and eternity and that God ultimately is going to deal with sin and evil and punish it and it will be restricted and then there will be a new heavens and a new earth where there will be uh, no evil. So this is important to understand in terms of of the overall plan of God and why it is important to understand what the Bible teaches about angels because human history is directly related to angelic events and especially the fall of Satan. So only Judaism and Christianity have an answer to the origin of evil. And this is really first, as I've said many times, this is why the book of Job was written, is to answer this question of why do bad things happen to good people? And so often today, nobody really does a very good job of answering that question. So the the Bible does. Non-Christians don't have an answer to it. They will often throw this in the face of Christians and say, well, how can you worship your God when when all these evil things happen, and and Christians just all of a sudden get a case of uh, of, of becoming mute, like Zechariah, and they just can't talk because they don't know what to say, and the best thing is just to ask a question. Say, well, that's a really difficult question. Why does evil happen? It's hard. How do you explain the presence of evil? Because on the basis of whatever non-biblical worldview they have, they can't answer the question. If they are an agnostic, if they're an evolutionist, then evil is eternal. Evil always exists, and that means that evil is normal. For Christianity, evil has a beginning. It is abnormal. It has an end. It will be removed, and there will be a restoration of perfection in the universe. But for the unbeliever, what you're trying to point out is that they can't even answer that question. They have no explanation of the origin of evil because based on their system, advance occurs through the survival of the fittest, one species destroying another species. How does that work for the environmentalist? Uh, They're just not consistent, but they're blind to their inconsistencies. See, the Bible says that God is going to bring resolution to the problem of evil. And as as, uh, Abraham states toward God in Genesis chapter 18 and the whole interchange about what's about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham states his faith well. He says, how shall, he says, shall not the God, the judge of all the earth do right? shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And that's the point. We may not understand it. We may not comprehend it. But God is perfect. His judgments are perfect. And he will always do the right thing. Even if I don't understand it now, someday I will have a better comprehension and I can trust him because he will do the right thing. Even though I don't understand what's going on right now. And so non-Christians just don't have an, uh, an answer. They can't distinguish between evil and good at all because in their system there's no ultimate determination of what is good and what is evil. So God allows free will, and because there's free will, people are free to fail to the degree they're free to succeed, and when they fail, it hurts other people. So that is the origin of evil. Now, with the fall of Satan... What I want to do is turn to the passage I mentioned at the beginning. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. 
There are two passages that talk about the fall of Satan. I am convinced of this from a lot of study. Now, I need to warn you that it is not popular among evangelicals anymore to think that these two passages, Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, and Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 down through uh, 17, 17, 18, 19, 12 to 19, that these passages uh, describe the fall of Satan. It's not popular. There is a excellent... PhD dissertation done at the at St. Andrews Seminary, which is a Seventh-day Adventist seminary. It's an excellent um, study by a scholar named Jose Bertolucci called The Son of the Morning and the Guardian Cherub in the, contra- in the Context of the Controversy Between Good and Evil. That was published in June of 19, or that was done in June of 1985. This guy, obviously, he's he's got three of the top Old Testament scholars considered it in evangelicalism today. Uh, Gerhard Hassel at the time, and also John Salehammer, who was at Trinity at the time, is his third reader. The reason I say that is that there are some guys who are listening to this who need to know that there are in-depth scholarly works. I pointed this out to Randy Price one time. I said, this guy nails it. I mean, he goes into the Ugaritic, he goes into Akkadian, he deals, because what the argument is, is these guys come along and say, well, they're just borrowing from Canaanite mythology, and they're using this Canaanite mythology as some sort of imagery background to, to talk about what's happening in history at that time in Israel. Really, how fascinating, how esoteric, how brilliant. Well, wait a minute. What exactly is the myth that they're quoting from? Oh, you don't know where that is. You're just guessing. Okay. And that's basically where he ends up. And he goes granular in terms of looking at Syrian, ancient Syrian mythology and Canaanite Syrophoenician mythology and everything else, and comes right to the conclusion that the only possibility that you have for interpreting these two chapters, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, is that they're talking about the angelic power behind these evil kings, because what is said about them cannot be true of a human being. And it, it's it's absolutely brilliant the way he handles it. And like most things that are right, they are it be, it's ignored by most people who want to hold to a non-biblical view. But you can hardly buy a study Bible. Ryrie is not that way. Ryrie still holds to this uh, that this is the fall of Satan. The uh, Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible holds to this as Satan. But there are uh, so many others. You, you, you can't buy a study Bible, whether it's the NIV or whether it's the, uh, was it the New King James Study Bible. And the, without these scholars in Isaiah, and more so in Isaiah, there's a few that will still hold to Ezekiel as being Satan, but uh, it's, just, it's just really sad. So... This idea that identifies the figure as some Canaanite or Phoenician myth is just not possible. There's no pagan myth that's ever been discovered that could provide such a source. And the second thing to know is that in both of these passages, what they're saying goes far beyond any event that can be related to a historical uh, figure. And third, the statement in Isaiah that starts off, oh, how you have fallen from heaven, does not fit any known mythology. There's no Babylonian or Assyrian ruler, because often they try to assign it to a human ruler, that ever lived in heaven or fell from heaven. These things just don't fit. Now, when we look at Ezekiel chapter 28, it starts off, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. And so what we have in the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 28 is a judgment and lament addressed to the prince of Tyre. But then when you get to verse 12, the instructions to Ezekiel are, Son of man, take up a lamentation of the king of Tyre. 
These are two different persons. The prince of Tyre is the human ruler. The king of Tyre is the Amanat's grease, the power behind the throne. Okay? So, <coughs> you know the term Amanat's grease refers to the time period of the three musketeers where you have the real power that was behind the throne of the French king is, um, uh, who's that, Louis the Fourteenth, and it's Cardinal Richelieu, the Amanat's uh, um, Rouge. Which one, Kathy? Mazarin is Grise. Yes, Mazarin is Grise. Amanat's Rouge was Richelieu. He wore the red robes. He's succeeded by Cardinal Mazarin, who wears a gray robe. So it's, he's the gray Amanat's. They're the powers behind the throne. So that's a, an idiom that refers to the real power behind the throne. I love reading Alexander Dumas. He's wonderful. Three Musketeers, 20 years after, and a Man in the Iron Mask. That's a trilogy. And they're great to read, great for, for your kids to read when they get a little older where they can read that at that level. Okay, I'll stop here. We'll get into Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 uh, next time. But that is the importance of understanding this and that this describes this interesting individual that lives in an interesting environment. It's called the Garden of God, Eden, the Garden of God, but it's not described quite like Genesis 2. All right, we'll see that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see that evil is that which you have allowed for a purpose. We not fully comprehend that purpose, but we trust you, and it all has to do with having creatures that will freely choose to follow you, serve you, and worship you, not robots, and to give creatures freedom to serve you there must also be freedom not to serve you and it is that failure that rebellion that has brought evil and sin and corruption into the universe and that will be dealt with eventually and finally when we get to the great white throne judgment and the end the true end of this world this heavens and this earth before you create a new one Pray that we might come to understand these things and see how they relate to our personal lives because they're very much part of our personal spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.